1: Here is your host,
0: John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to Felony Friday, a weekly show right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, it's on Felony Friday, where we focus on exposing injustice in this nation's broken criminal justice system. If this is your first time listening to Felony Friday or the Lions of Liberty podcast as a whole... This is only one of three shows. We actually kick things off every single Monday with a show hosted by Mark Clare, where he's typically interviewing leaders in the liberty movement. Sometimes he's hosting roundtable discussions. We just had this past Monday an episode of our Libertarians in Living Rooms drinking liquor, always entertaining. And every Wednesday, we have Electric Liberty Land hosted by Brian McWilliams, which is your weekly shot of... Comedy, culture, and liberty. And you can get all three of these shows in your podcast feed by subscribing just to one podcast. You can find the Lions of Liberty podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. So be sure to subscribe today. Also, to get the full Lions of Liberty experience, if you haven't joined our private Facebook forum, the Lions of Liberty Forum, please consider doing so. Facebook is a crazy freaking place. But the Lions of Liberty Forum is a little corner of the internet that is not insane. You don't have people screaming at you and yelling at you and calling you names. We have fun, we tell jokes, and we generally just have a good time. So join the Lions of Liberty Forum by going to Facebook, typing Lions of Liberty Forum in the search bar at the top, and we will get you right in as long as you're not a lunatic. This episode of Felony Friday is the 108th episode. That means you'll be able to find show notes, with links and notes to everything that we're going to talk about today with my guest at lionsofliberty.com slash FF108. We're going to be linking to a couple different stories, and uh, you're definitely going to want to check out the show notes page to follow along, read the background of these two stories uh, specifically that we're going to talk about. This episode of Felony Friday is sponsored by the Better Money Pack. Now, the Better Money Pack was founded to identify and to help elect candidates who will fight for three founding principles, financial responsibility, safe cryptocurrency, and free market solutions. The Better Money Pack is going to fight for those principles by investing in five selected races in 2018, and they want to elect candidates at the state level who embody this fight for better money. They will produce and distribute comprehensive media outreach campaigns in order to win these elections, please consider donating today through the Lions of Liberty affiliate link that you can find at lionsofliberty.com slash bettermoney. My guest today on Felony Friday is John Palumbi. John has practiced law for over 30 years, and almost that entire time has been as a public defender. He has represented clients on death row in three different states and has argued over 50 cases in state and federal courts, and he's filed uh, briefs in over 200 cases. Now, for the last nine years, he's been an assistant federal defender in the Capital Habeas Unit for the Federal Defender's Office for the Middle District of Alabama, representing in- indigent defendants on Alabama's death row. John, welcome to Felony Friday.
1: Thanks very much.
0: Well, thanks for coming on the show, and I was happy that we were able to get connected. Um, you know, this this topic, uh, talking about death row and uh, everything surrounding that, I, I know that people come into it with, uh, you know, very, very polarized opinions, and I think often they don't really think about the everything that's going on uh, behind the scenes, and I think through our discussion today uh, based on the the cases that you've uh, told me you've worked on I've done some research on them, I think people are going to be surprised about certain aspects of how how these cases work and this, uh, certainly the the power that uh, that judges have in some of these cases to determine if someone goes to death row and we'll get into talking about all of that stuff, but before we go down that road um, let's get to know more about you so Why? What motivated you in the first place to become a lawyer?
1: I think if you ask people who know me, I've always wanted to be a lawyer from like the time I was in middle school. Um, I've always been fascinated with the law and the Constitution. You know, when high school classmates talk to me, you know, 40 years later, when I go, yes, I'm a lawyer, they go, yeah, and Um, none of them are surprised. I so going to law school and becoming a lawyer is something I always wanted to do. I will readily admit that when I went to law school, doing what I'm doing now is not what I anticipated doing. Um, However, I did an internship after my second year uh, with the office of the state appellate defender in uh, Chicago. And ever since then i have really only wanted to do criminal law and in particular being a public defender uh so i have done both non-capital and capital work as a public defender and i think for me the idea of the highest quality representation to people who cannot afford lawyers is a pretty high calling And I do my best to give them representation, possibly even better than they would have gotten had they paid for it.
0: Would you say there's a a shortage of public defenders or at least a shortage of maybe uh, competent public defenders?
1: There is definitely a shortage of public defenders. I think what you have is that there is a shortage and that causes high caseloads and high caseloads then trickle down and obviously the higher the caseloads a a public defender has the you know the harder it's going to be to give the kind of representation that they that they want to give i'm pretty lucky in my position um because because my practice now is so focused uh, you know, compared to a trial-level public defender, I, I they would look at my caseload and go, wow, you have hardly any cases. Now, compared to another capital post-conviction public defender, I probably have a decent amount, you know, maybe more than the average. But um, so I think it's, I would absolutely say there is a shortage. And what we need is balance because having more public defenders will uh, would allow better representation and, frankly, more efficient use of the judicial system, as well as having uh, more fair and equitable results for everybody in the system.
0: Yeah, or it could be that we just have too many laws in this country, too. <laughs> Well, there's,
1: believe me, there are a lot that make you just scratch your head or go, isn't there some real crime you could be prosecuting Uh, or things like that? Uh, We we see a lot, you see a lot of that in the non-capital world.
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely agree with that. So
1: where did you go to law school? I went to law school at uh, DePaul University in Chicago.
0: And so so what was your, can you just give a quick, uh, quick, Brief overview of your your career uh, movements around? Because you've you've worked in several Um, different states,
1: right? Right. I started out, I actually did something a lot of uh, lawyers do right out of law school. I worked as a staff attorney for an appellate court. Um, A lot of people probably don't realize that much of the work in appellate courts is done by judges, clerks, and staff attorneys. Who do the research and write draft opinions and things like that um so did that for a couple of years uh practiced at a small private firm in chicago for a year uh left that became a, and then became a, an appellate an assistant appellate in uh springfield illinois held that job until there were massive um budget cuts in 1990 that led to laying off of a great number of staff, uh, including me, since I was one of the new ones. Uh, Then I spent five years uh, working for the insurance commission for the state of Illinois. Uh, But uh, after that, an opportunity came up in Kentucky where I could become a public defender again, Uh, and I jumped at it, and I was a public defender in Kentucky from 1997 until 2008 when I moved down here. And in Kentucky, I did both um, non-capital appellate work and capital appellate work, and then uh, what's called capital post-conviction work, which is what I do now uh, in Alabama. So Lots of little things, but like I said, most of my career has been as a public defender. And I have argued cases in the Illinois Supreme Court, the Kentucky Supreme Court, uh, appellate courts, state appellate courts in Illinois and Kentucky, federal appellate court in Kentucky, and then uh, federal court here a number of times.
0: I think I know the answer to my next question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So what... What is your stance being someone that's uh, that's working in these uh, post conviction capital courts what's your stance on the death penalty
1: well i'm a, I'm opposed to the death penalty, and I have two basic reasons one i I do have a religiously based opposition to it. however, I have a non-religiously based opposition to it, which probably fits with a lot of your listeners, which is I don't really trust the government to decide to take somebody's life. If I don't trust this government to do a whole bunch of other things, why would I trust this? And in fact, I even have a little cartoon on my wall, which has somebody talking, is somebody protesting saying, I don't trust the government. And then it shows them outside some uh, a prison with somebody being executed. And it says, except for this. And I'm like, no, I don't think that's how this works. This this is easily one, you know, this is the most serious thing that a government can do. It's taking the life of one of its citizens. And I, I just, having seen the, the way this system works, it, it really scare people that this is what's going on.
0: Yeah, that's that's definitely. I mean, that resonates with me, uh, myself personally. I'm I'm also against the death penalty, and I've had on two two previous guests. Uh, most recently, Shane Claiborne, who is a uh, I don't know how to describe him. I guess he's a a pastor, more of a uh, comes at it from more of a evangelical angle, um, being against the death penalty. He gave me some stat that God, it was something like out of All the uh, cases where inmates have been put to death, like the rate of it being uncovered that it's wrong is like 15% or something like that, that, that a mistake was made.
1: Right. The reversal rate of people that are sentenced to death is actually fairly high because these cases are so emotional. And prosecutors in so many states, most, are elected. And what gets them elected is saying they're tough on crime. And capital cases get the attention. So they want a conviction.
0: You know, I think most Americans look at, the most they think about this is by looking at a headline. And they look at a headline, they see a, a gruesome murder, a gruesome rape, something like that. They might see a face in the paper of the of the person who's been convicted. And it's, uh, you know, they associate that with the, the prosecutor who is, making sure this person is put to death. And that's all they think about. They think life must be better now that this person who did this horrible, horrible crime is no longer on earth. I mean, I honestly, that's, that's all I think would most people, the thought that they put into it. They don't actually go ahead and think about all the people who have been falsely convicted through the work of the innocence, innocence project. Obviously there's been countless people who have been um, vindicated and, and been released from, from death row and, Unfortunately, there's been a lot of people put to put to death who were wrongly convicted. So it's great to have people like you who are willing to really devote their your life to to uh, to fighting this, to fighting against capital punishment. So I wanted to talk about there's one case that, <clears throat> excuse me, that you sent me specifically, um, the case of Ronald Burt Smith, and this was uh, in Alabama, and rather than, than me go through it, I'm sure you, you know better than me. So could you just give us a, a little background on this case and then um, talk about um, y- your involvement with it?
1: I will. Um, this, case, this case will always uh, be close to me. Um, you know, Ron, Ron was executed in December of 2016 uh I represented Ron I basically got to find this case when I showed up in 2008 and um and there's two aspects to Ron's case that happened that are, that are very disturbing. And First, I'm going to get this part out of the way. There is no question that Ron was guilty. Um Ron was guilty. Uh it was a convenience store Um, the murder of somebody working at a convenience store. Uh, There was a question of whether it was robbery or not, but that would probably take me an hour to explain the vagaries of murder, robbery, and things like that. Suffice it to say, Ron showed remorse. What happened at Ron's trial was after he was convicted, uh, the way the process works, then go to what's called the sentencing phase. Uh, Ron was able to put on evidence. Uh, Ron was an Eagle scout. Ron had been an Eagle scout, uh, very intelligent. And Ron put on a bunch of evidence and the jury in Ron's case voted that he should live by an eight to four vote. They voted for life without parole in every other state except at the time, Alabama, Florida, and Delaware. In every other state with the death penalty, that would have ended the process. Ron would have been sentenced to life without parole, and that would have been the end of it. However, at the time in Alabama, the judge was permitted to do what is called an override. And the judge did exactly that the judge rejected the jury's sentence of life without parole and sentenced Ron to death. Ron then appealed, uh, which is an automatic appeal in the system, to the Alabama Supreme Court and his conviction and sentence were affirmed. This is where Alabama, the next step is again where Alabama, Alabama is the only state That does not provide attorneys to do what is called state post conviction work. Uh, So uh, Ron had to, Ron, with the help of the Equal Justice Initiative, had to find a volunteer lawyer to take on his case. And to challenge things like whether his lawyers did a proper investigation and all sorts of matters like that, um, the Equal Justice Initiative found a lawyer in Tennessee who was willing to do this, uh, and then they found local counsel to file pleadings for Ron. The lawyers in Tennessee never met Ron. Um, they took a a previously prepared state post-conviction petition that had been sort of done as a shell for Ron and file and had the local attorney file it. This is where everything started going so wrong. So wh-
0: why would they, um, I mean, that can, that's a shortcut, right? Why would they volunteer to do something and then do something like that?
1: Well, They couldn't they they couldn't file it on their own until they got um, admitted for the purposes of that. Um, So you could get admitted for purposes of one case to practice law in another state. And they had to have the petition filed and then they could make the motion to do that. By the way, the law firm actually never made that motion the the, the, law, the last thing that law firm ever did in this case was file that first thing. Here was the problem. There has been, since 1996, a very strict deadline when it comes to filing state post-conviction petitions that affects filing federal habeas corpus And I know this sounds a little weird that what you do in state court affects the time for federal court, but um, in 1996, because there was a perception that death penalty cases were taking long, um, Congress passed and President Clinton signed the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act which had nothing to do with terrorism and actually very little to do with the death penalty. Um, It says that once you you have one year to file your state post-conviction petition, and every day you don't file it is one day less you have to file your federal habeas petition when you're done in state court. That's sort of the simplest way to explain it. Ron's attorneys filed his state petition two days before the one-year deadline. However, they left something out. They failed to file a motion to proceed um, as an indigent, meaning that he didn't have to pay a fee. So his case just sat there. Now, why did it just sit there, even though he had a local attorney? Because unfortunately, his local attorney was dealing with some very, very, very severe addiction problems. And to the point where he was on probation when these things were being filed. Um, And what happened a few months after? these things were filed was that um, he got arrested when visiting a client at a prison because he got sick at the prison and passed out. And when they went out to his car, they found meth, cocaine, and a number of other things. Uh, This man eventually had to give up. uh, Shortly after that, he gave up his law practice. Um, and sadly he went into rehab and a few months after that, um, when he came out of rehab, he actually committed suicide. That part of that part of this story is incredibly sad, uh, because it ended up what he did or didn't do in terms of filing that one little motion had a domino effect years down the road. But at this point, he's he's off the case the tennessee lawyers get off the case and some local alabama lawyers step in they do ron's case there's a hearing um they lose the case they do an appeal they represent ron very well okay they come the case ends in state court My office, and this is before I actually joined the office, then filed his federal habeas corpus petition. This is where all the things that happened the five years before come to play. The state moved to dismiss the federal habeas corpus petition as untimely because The petition was not, and and this is, was not properly filed within one year because he had left out that motion and didn't pay the filing fee. So five years after all that, the state is now going back, went back to that incident and said, "Eh, sorry, your habeas petition gets thrown out. Um, we appealed, you know, there was sort of, and the district court agreed with the state and threw out the habeas corpus petition the yes, yeah, because of this mistake. So he got no federal review of his conviction. We did the appeal and, um, while that appeal was pending, a case came out from the United States Supreme Court called Holland versus Florida that addressed this kind of situation and said, well, if your lawyer screws up badly enough and you were diligent, then we'll let you do your habeas petition. So the, um, the district court looked at Ron's case, again with this new case law and said, Well, the lawyer really screwed up. But you, Ron, inmate, did you weren't diligent. You didn't like call up your lawyer and ask him what was going on or doing any of this. So we're sorry, you lose.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by the Better Money Super Pack. The Better Money Pack was founded to identify and help elect candidates who will fight for their three founding principles of financial responsibility, safe cryptocurrency, and free market solutions. And the Better Money Pack provides an avenue for those of us who support sound money to the problems plaguing this nation. They provide a way to take action. And they're going to do this by investing in five selected races in 2018 to elect candidates at the state level who embody the fight for better money. We decided to partner with the Better Money Pack because we believe in their vision. You can support both the Lions of Liberty and the Better Money Pack by visiting lionsofliberty.com slash bettermoney. And of course, credit, debit, and crypto donations are accepted. So once again, lionsofliberty.com slash money. Let's get back to the show. Is that standard? I mean, is this something that you've seen in other cases, or is this something confined to Alabama, or is this something confined just to this case?
1: This is something that, well, we have three cases. Had At one point, we had three cases in the office where something like this happened. Um, you know, Another case, and unfortunately, two of those clients have been executed without any federal habeas corpus review, the third one we are still fighting for, that one's attorney actually got disbarred for for screwing this case up. But it was very, very common in Alabama and Florida. It's not common in other states, because in other states they appoint lawyers who are experts in doing this work to do the state post-conviction. For example, when I, we never had this issue in Kentucky because when I worked in Kentucky, because the office I worked for handled both the state post-conviction and the federal habeas. So we never missed these deadlines or you know those things. We just did all that. And so it was never an issue. It only came into being in these states And it was particularly Florida and Alabama, a little bit of Georgia, but it was mostly Florida and Alabama. And it's also partially because the federal court for that, for the um, states for Alabama, Florida and Georgia, had one of the harshest rules about this. Most other federal courts would say okay, this is a capital case. We're going to let this guy have his habeas corpus. We didn't do that here. And so this is not an isolated incident. It's pretty egregious, but it's not isolated. And there have been a number of people Mm. executed in Alabama, Georgia, and Florida that never got federal habeas corpus review of their convictions. And that's, you know, federal habeas corpus is, the writ protected by the United States Constitution. Um, you know, the writ of habeas corpus is not to be suspended. Um, yet there are people that are being executed with no habeas corpus review. Um, so we appealed, we lost. We, I asked the United States Supreme Court to review the case. They didn't review the case now at that point that's sort of the end of phase one of ron's of what i'm calling phase one of ron's case phase two of ron's case didn't really pop up until much later remember when i said that the jury voted for life and the judge overrode that that was very common and it happened in florida alabama and delaware in um 2016 january 2016 the united states supreme court decided a case called hearst versus florida where they reversed older cases from the 90s and held that florida's death penalty sentencing system was unconstitutional because the judge, the judge was making the decision about the death penalty, not the jury. So that happened in 2016. Shortly after that decision, the state asked for an execution date for Ron, And this is where everything started to happen. And this is where I think the second set of articles that I sent you <laughs> occurred. We asked the Alabama Supreme Court to apply the new United States Supreme Court case of Hearst versus Florida and reverse Ron's death sentence and impose the life without parole sentence that the jury gave him, because it was clearly the judge that made the findings to sentence him to death. The Alabama Supreme Court said no. And we were then coming up very close to Ron's scheduled execution date in December 2016. I then asked the United States Supreme Court to review the um, Alabama Supreme Court's decision. If you remember, at that time, the United States Supreme Court only had eight justices. Justice Scalia had died and had not yet been replaced. So I filed a petition for a writ of certiorari, which is their fancy word for take a look at the case and a motion for a stay of execution pending the Supreme court considering this case. So what happened was we waited executions in Alabama are scheduled for six o'clock probably around five o'clock we got an order from the supreme court temporarily staying the execution now those actually happen a lot because the supreme court some states will be polite to the u.s supreme court and if the u.s supreme court says hey we need more time will you hold off from starting the execution They'll say, yes, Texas will do that. Georgia will do that. Alabama will not do that. Alabama takes the position that if they want more time, they have to issue a stay. So the U.S. Supreme Court issued a stay of execution to allow them to look at my filings some more. So that was at five o'clock. We were actually still pretty confident at this point. This was a big deal. They had not been faced with a case like Ron's since they had issued that decision in January. So we waited and we waited and we waited. And it was after eight o'clock when I got a phone call from the United States Supreme Court. And that's how this is done, by the way. They actually call you. There is a clerk who is responsible for dealing with the capital cases, and they will call you up and tell you what's going on. And she called me and said that the court had denied the stay with a four to four vote. It takes five to get a stay. It takes four to grant certiorari, but it takes five votes to to get a stay. Four of the justices wanted more time to look at the case. Here is what was particularly upsetting to me. Approximately two months earlier, they were in the exact same situation for a different inmate in alabama and they stayed his execution chief justice roberts said well i don't think his cert petition should be granted but out of courtesy to my fellow justices who want more time to look at it i'll vote to grant a stay so they had done that two months before then in my case they didn't do it I then filed a motion, which I had prepared earlier because I had thought this scenario might happen. And I filed a motion asking them to reconsider that, stating that there was no rational reason for the chief justice to vote to stay the other execution and not stay this execution. There's no rational reason. To, to, differentiate between the two cases. Um, so when that happened, they issued another temporary stay. They then took probably another half an hour and, um, then they eventually denied that motion. And it was probably, it was after 10 o'clock. When they finally what, what started, was
0: the, what was the basis for that denial? They
1: they just said the motion's denied. There's no rationale at all. Hmm. Um, you very rarely get rationale in these late night rulings from the Supreme Court in these stay things. Um, so that happened, and then Ron was executed a little bit after ten o'clock uh, which, and it was a horrific execution. Uh, he coughed at least 12 times. He was moving throughout. Um, so it was horrible.
0: This was le- lethal injection.
1: Yes. Using midazolam. Um, so, uh, you know, which is another aspect of this that people think that these executions are very smooth and there's just an injection and it just looks like somebody goes to sleep and that's not true. Um, it's, it's not what happens. So anyway, that was how this, that, that, you know, Ron's case just to me illustrates so many of the things wrong with our capital punishment system. That, you know, both in the first segment of it and in the second segment of it, that um, that's why I you know, wanted to talk about this case in particular, because I think there are a whole lot of people that don't realize that this is the way this capital punishment system works.
0: Yeah, I, I think the vast majority of the country doesn't think it works this way. Uh, no, it's, I, I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> Um, I did want to ask you about, if we have time, um, you had mentioned a case in Kentucky that you'd worked on that went to the uh, Supreme Court as well. Can you share about that case?
1: Yes, that, that case I was on I was one of the attorneys on the case, um, Bayes versus Reese, which challenged the constitutionality of using um, lethal injection. And that was in 2008. Um, The Supreme Court upheld using that method of lethal injection. um, They upheld that in 2008. That method that was in Bayes is not used in any state anymore um, because um, the first drug in that protocol, sodium thiopental, is not manufactured anywhere in the United States or Europe, uh, anymore. And it's made, I believe in one place in India, that's a little sketchy. Um, and so states have tried to buy some, but they can't even legally get it into the country. They're trying to, Um, but. So I was on that case where we challenged um, lethal injection. That one really challenged how they were doing it and the safeguards, because there's no question that if somebody is not anesthetized when they are injected with the third drug in a three-drug protocol, that they will suffer absolutely excruciating pain. And in fact, in Bayes, the U.S. Supreme Court held that if the person is not anesthetized when they're injected with the third drug, that actually violates the Eighth Amendment. So the whole thing comes to, are they anesthetized when the third drug in the three-drug protocol is injected? Um, That's the question that, you know, is still being uh, argued all over the country, uh, particularly in both Ohio and Alabama. Um, We actually will be having a trial sometime this year on Alabama's present protocol and whether it violates the Eighth Amendment. So um, and one of the key points In that trial will be what happened at Ron Smith's execution to argue that he was not anesthetized when he was injected with the third drug. Um, People probably should know because I'm sure they have an idea of this. There are no doctors involved anywhere in that process in Alabama's um,
0: execution process. The
1: only time a doctor is
0: that unique to Alabama or is that?
1: No, that's pretty much the same in every state. Some states have had doctors involved. Um, Missouri had a doctor for a while who had lost his license. uh, Involved Oklahoma, I believe did have a doctor involved at one point that didn't stop them from having a botched execution. Um, But it is very common to not have any doctor involved in this process until the doctor comes in and pronounces death. That's certainly the case in Alabama. The, that's the first time a doctor is involved in the process. They come in and pronounce the person dead. Um, one of the key points in the execution process is to determine before after the first drug is injected before they get to the second drug um, they perform a consciousness assessment again you would think this would be something that a trained medical professional would do it's not it's done by a corrections officer with no medical training whatsoever um We have anesthesiologists who will testify that it takes years of practice to determine if somebody is anesthetized and that, you know, it takes going to med school, doing a residency in anesthesiology and even doing this a few times with an anesthesiologist before they'll let somebody do it by themselves. Instead, we have corrections officers.
0: (laughs) Unbelievable. I mean, it's it's really. I mean, it's it goes back to what you said at the beginning. Um, for one of the reasons why being opposed to the death penalty, or I guess, a, a aspect of that of not trusting the federal government or the government to to do it right, and this goes back right to that. I mean, exactly. Definitely doesn't sound like a like a humane death.
1: No, uh, it's it's not. It's it's not, and you know, regardless of how someone feels i know i you know believe me i read the comments in the newspapers you know there people are like so what if he tortured we're better than that as a country and as humans um so again why why we trust the government to get this right is me. Yeah,
0: and uh and I would definitely advise against reading the comments on the internet or newspapers or anything. Because <laughs> that don't. is that is the uh I don't know who those people are, but they are some of the most ruthless people in society. They go right to the comment sections.
1: They do. I I've stopped reading because usually they say things like, you know, his lawyer should be strapped down with him. Uh, you know, inject him to things like that.
0: Yeah, You know, that's that's not something that I'd thought of Um, in in the line of work you're in getting. um, Have you ever gotten any sort of. Do you get criticism outside of comment sections from from uh, from being in this field?
1: Not really. I mean, even, you know, my, my family, you know, understands. I have, I believe, persuaded my family that, you know, this system doesn't work the way they think it works. Um, and uh, but for the most for the most part, no um, and, you know, I have done things, you know, I have talked to victims' families you know, family members of victims of my clients' cases and, you know, I had one very honestly tell me, she said, you seem like a very nice man. I wish you would lose your case, but you're a very nice man and I understand why you're doing what you're doing <laughs> but you seem like a very nice
0: man so the one thing I wanted to ask you about I was talking about my previous uh, interview with Shane Claiborne, and the one thing he talked about was often the um, the victim's family in, in cases like this where, where they go to capital punishment will be against um, the defendant the convicted going or being sent to death row uh, is, is that something that that you've that you've seen? A lot of or any of
1: it? Well, I've, I've seen a little bit of it, um, but truth be told, they end up and quite often prosecutors just don't listen, and prosecutors will convince these families that the only thing that will give them closure is if the person who killed their loved one is executed. And here's what I re- here's what I can say about this. Prosecutors will and I can I've seen this more than once and I have heard it from more than one victim's relative. They are, you know, during the trial, the prosecutors are, you know, whatever you need, and, you know, we're telling them, you know, at the trial level, telling them what's going on, all this other stuff. And they'll say, you know, you know, if you need to talk to us, we'll be here. We'll check on you, and say, they'll say things like that. And then, as soon as they get the death sentence, these victim families don't hear from the prosecution again. I can't tell you how many times I have seen, I have had victim's family members say. And, and remember, I'm coming in 10 years after this stuff has happened, 10 years after the trial, usually. And they will say, you know, you're the first person who's come to tell us what was going on. And they've had no clue what was going on.
0: No contact no from anyone whatsoever.
1: That any of, no contact from anyone. And, you know, we're coming in there as the defense. And they're go- and they're appreciative that we're at least telling them what's happening and you know but these but they will be paraded in for every hearing in the case. they will bring in all these victims relatives and it's it, it's just really bothersome to me these you know these people have had something horrific happen to them. They have had a loved one who was murdered, often brutally, and they deserve more respect than that, and and more respect than I think they get from the prosecution. Um, I mean, they really do deserve that respect. This is, you know, it's not their fault. They they have had something horrible happen to them, and they've been thrust into this system that is complicated takes a long time. And again, they're told they'll get closure if this person's executed when in reality it, if somebody gets life without parole, quite often these things all end long before they would end if the person got death. And there wouldn't be hearings and instead if someone gets death, these victims families have to relive these hearings over and over and over again. And it's it to me, it just shows a, a level of disrespect.
0: Right. Because if it was life without parole, the, the trial is going to be much quicker because with the death penalty, you have all the appeals and everything. And, th- and that goes back to, to the cost side of it, why it's so much more costly, right? Because of... Yes.
1: And, and people, I think people also have this misconception that life without parole will cost more because they'll be in prison so much longer. The truth is life without parole is actually cheaper than capital punishment. It's, it's cheaper because of exactly what you just said. Um, you know, this, the system will, will move faster or somebody may even choose to say, okay, I'm done. I'm not going to challenge this anymore. I'm just going to accept life without parole and I move on. And that's, and, and that's not even taking into account the fact that if somebody does get life without parole, if we don't have a death penalty, and a mistake is found, we can fix to a certain extent. Obviously, we can't give somebody their 10, 20, 30 years that they've spent in prison back, but they're not dead, which is the other reason life you know, life without parole. Life without parole is a pretty harsh sentence. People shouldn't think it's a walk in the park. Yeah, it's
0: Based not. on the, the current setup of our prison system where where a lot of these uh convicts are sent to, yeah, it can be it can be hell, um, from the stories I hear. Uh yes.
1: Well and particularly because there's there's not adequate health care. There's not you know, there's a whole bunch you, grow, growing old in prison is not something anyone wants to do.
0: Absolutely. Well, John, uh, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for being um, so generous with your time. I, I know you're a busy guy. I just want to give you an opportunity before I let you go um, to give a, any parting words of wisdom that you, that you have on your mind.
1: Um, I would just ask people to really step back and think when they see a capital case to think past the horrific murder and think about what we are saying as a, you know, what your government is actually doing <laughs> and that they're trying to take the life of the citizen. It's easy to have the reaction of, this is a horrific murder. We need to have vengeance, but, I don't particularly want the government conducting vengeance. And I'm sure that if, and I just, you know, I want people to think about that. You know, should the government be exacting vengeance? And I think the answer to that question is no.
0: I think that's a great way to put it and a good note to end on. Thank you so much for coming on the show, John. Thank
1: you, John. I really appreciate it.
0: Great conversation today with John Palombi, and I'm really honored that John came on the show. You know, a man that has a tremendous amount of experience in the legal field—thirty years, thirty years—that's almost as old as I am. Not to make you sound old, John. I'm not trying to do that. I'm just blown away by the uh, level of experience and the impact that you've been able to to have in, in your time. And uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's common. I should have I should have asked John about this. If it's common for somebody to really work almost exclusively as a public defender, especially as a public defender of capital crimes of post of uh, post conviction um, sentencing of capital crimes post conviction. So that's that's. Uh, It's definitely definitely interesting. And John's an interesting guy, a very intelligent guy. I learned a lot during this conversation. And when we talk about the death penalty, like I said at the beginning, people bring in a lot of baggage with them. And you know, a lot of people really sort of refuse to look at the other side's argument when talking about the death penalty. I try to understand both sides of the argument. I am against the death penalty. For many of the reasons that was t- that were talked about today, I am against the death penalty due to religious reasons. I am against the death penalty also due to the fact that I just don't think in a civilized society it is a humane way to operate. It's a humane way to punish people. I, I, I don't think it is. And on top of that, especially right now, putting those other two things aside. If those were not even in the picture, looking at the way things are right now with the federal government, with the court system, there's no way in heck I want them to have the ability, um, the responsibility to hold someone's life in their hands, that they can extinguish a life, the most important thing uh, that we're given here. If we don't have our life, we don't have liberty. So that's where I stand on the death penalty. I encourage you all to sound off in the Alliance of Liberty forum which, of course, you know where to find it, Facebook, Lions of Liberty Forum, and we'll let you in if you're a real person. I don't have much more today. I just want to remind you guys, join the Pride. I did make a post in the Lions of Liberty Forum earlier this week talking about all the people that have joined the Pride. I think as of recording right now, this month alone, we've had, I think, 22 uh, new Pride members this month and we're up over $800 per month in pride subscriptions. Once we hit that $1000 level, we are going to Liberty Events, Liberty Conventions, probably the first one being Pork Fest. So I'm excited. I know Mark and Brian are really excited too. This is sort of the next step for our podcast. We're going to continue to uh reach out and advertise other podcasts, but we're, so we're going to start to to go around and uh do some podcasts, do some interviews uh, from these events and have some fun, have some fun with you guys, if you're uh, hopefully able to attend these events as well. And you can help us get there if you haven't joined the Pride yet. You can join at the $25 level, our Lion Guard level, where you get a conference call, you get free stuff, free t-shirts, you get a free koozie, you get access to all of our bonus content for $25 a month. If you can, not swing that. 10 bucks a month, you get everything I just talked about, except for the... Monthly conference call, and you also get one less free t-shirt. So there's that. If you can't afford that, you still get the bonus content just for five bucks a month. You get all the bonus content. And at all three levels, of course, you get in the private, private secret, actually. It's not private, it's a secret Facebook group for Alliance Pride. You can't even find it unless you're a member of the Lions Pride. So That's it, guys. We want you in the Lions Pride, and we want to take this show to the next level. We are well on our way, thanks to our current Lions Pride members, and thanks to really all of our listeners, because without you all, you know, I'm just talking into a microphone. So thank you so much for your support. Thank you for listening. And with that being said, guys, this is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up, and the fires of liberty burning.